Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 289. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have lined up today. This is the first time as well, because it's such a good show, that I've actually, I've even got notes on paper as well, there's that much to tell you. So I'll tell you what is coming in today's show. We have short fiction by Peter F. Hamilton, Return of the Mutant Worms. Then we have music soundtracks by David Raiklin. Then the main fiction is First Fire by Terry Bisson. Then we have a little promo right at the end, Dark Missives, little horror genre magazine online fanzine for you. There you go. That is today's show, but there's so much more to go into this show. And if you haven't, and I'm going to play something here and there now, if you're feeling a little bit glum and you're feeling a little bit down, and there's a reason why I'm going to play it, you know what I mean, which will be made apparent later on in the show, but... I'm going to play something from the early Starship Sova days. There, my like, kind of memories of Red Dwarf, but like I say, I can. I watched. Um, I also remember the best one for me, or one of the best ones, was the, the, the Spare Squid one in season six. And that's the one, like, one of your wife's favourite ones. So, and I can just remember that being played and getting the shivers and everything when that first came out. That. That one show, I thought, wow, when all hallucinating and everything like that. I think for me, it was the gags. Often is not delivered by Rimmer, Chris Barry, delivering these stories. And whenever you got a really good Rimmer story, it would start off 
an arch-typical kind of uh, description of something. It's obviously, with anybody else, would have been a wonderful moment that would always, 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 without a doubt there, sink uh, below anybody's expectations of terrible. And I think that possibly my favorite, it used to be a story I used to tell to people as a, as a joke, and it was um, my first French kiss. And it, it, it goes something along the lines of, um, I was on holiday with my Uncle Frank and my mum. My Uncle Frank had two twin daughters. Now, I'm pretty certain Lucy quite fancied me, but Jane was the one that I was keen on. Anyway, I was in bed, asleep, and imagine my surprise when this tongue is forced between my lips while I'm asleep, and I wake up to look and to notice it was me Uncle Frank. He'd come across to see me mum, slipped into the wrong bedroom there, and he'd ended up French kissing me instead. And that was like the first French kiss story. <laughs> and it was just... Uh, What's your Uncle Frank one this French kiss your mother for? <laughs> well, obviously it was one of those kind of, you know, uncles and in inverted commas. Right. Know, the way you explain things to children. There. This is your Uncle Frank, he's a really lovely bloke there. No real family link. That's actually why you are probably so strange and Kieran. <laughs> no, but that's a story from Red Dwarf. <laughs> you can What's tell? that it's from? I thought you were telling. I don't believe this. I think that's the, the point there. You could take a good Red Dwarf story to it. He thought he's going purple at this moment in time there. He's got the giggles. You could tell a good story from Red Dwarf. One of those rimmer... Was... <laughs> rimmer I thought that was my fucking real man. <laughs> I, was, I was actually thinking about when I should edit that. That one straight out there. <laughs> oh, man. That didn't do me. But it was. I mean, Red Dwarf was the comedy soundtrack for, for our lives. I mean, I'm sweating. I thought you were revealing something so personal. I'm thinking, Christ, I can't put that on me. Kieran getting French kissed off his uncle. If that did go out there, there'd be a lot of family speculation about uh, who Uncle Frank actually was. I don't know where it's all come from. Oh, hell. Right. There you go. If that didn't make you smile, come on. A little bit of light-hearted shot there. Now, there is a reason for that, and I'll tell you a little bit later on why I'm playing Red Dwarf. That's myself and Kieran from the early Starships over the originals. But anyway, I want to, what I do want to kind of mention now is SofaCon. We have so much going on for SofaCon. 28th of July, the date is set. And like you see, I'm just kind of building up the kind of the hype there to get everything sorted out. I'll tell you what, we've got actually the, the running order of, of, of running order as near as we can kind of get it. So it's going to run a little bit like this. There'll be so many changes and chops. And actually, there's to be confirmed as well. But we'll start on the 20th of July, and it's probably going to kick off at 1500. Now, I actually slotted in lots of times for this as well, but times aren't going to work just yet. So, we'll have like a little opening, you know, a hello by me, then an introduction by our 
guest of honour, Mr. Peter Watts. He'll, Peter will give a little kind of talk. Then the next section is looking back at genre history, Amy H. Sturgis. Now, guess what as well? Ames has wrote this, and I'll, I'll hunt it out now, and I'll kind of find it, and I'll read it. But Ames has wrote like a little piece on the kind of, you know, sofa con and the first one. Ames is going to go back in history and look at all the cons, you know, the science fiction conventions, which is like a topic for looking back at genre history. How cool is that? Then we're going to have a reading by the fantastic Ted Kuzmatka. Ted's going to come on and read some of his fiction. And like I say, this is all in video, so you'll get to see all, you know what I mean? So that'll be quite cool. Then we have another fact article. We have Dennis M. Lane, who's going to be doing one of his film talks. Then there's a section there which I've got on my Evernote little pad saying to be confirmed. Now, we're actually trying for a big writer here. Uh, Can't say much too much just yet, but we're looking to get high-class writer in there. But we'll wait and see, fingers crossed. Then we're going to have another reading by Gregory Frost. Greg's going to come over, and, and if you've listened to Starship Sova... Fantastic, a fantastic writer, you know what I mean, first and foremost, but a great reader as well. So we're going to get Greg to kind of have a little talk about that and do a little reading for her. Then we have Amazing Stories. They're going to come over and host the kind of like a little section on the Sovacon and do everything over there, you know, regarding Amazing Stories. Then right at the end, or nearly at the end, we're going to do a bit light-hearted. We're going to have a quiz Myself and Amy H. Sturgis are going to be the quiz masters. And it's SF Signal up against To Be Confirmed. Now, I was looking for actually people out there in the kind of blogs here, but I was wondering, I wonder if we should actually just make it a more, you know, to make it a personal thing and have a couple of listeners take on the might that is SF Signal in a science fiction quiz. I wonder if that would work. Let us know. Then we have guest of honour, Mr. Peter Watts, will give a little talk. And round things up for the day. So that is SofaCon. That's what we've got planned. And it's actually going to be... I've told my wife, I says, that's going to take a few hours there. You know, I'm saying, kicking off at 1500 UK time. I don't know, it might go to, say, 9, 10 o'clock at night UK time. Wow. God, <laughs> it just be bloody looking at what? Come on, man, finish it off. So that's what we've got planned. Open, you know, running up there, I'll keep on dropping in a little more information about SofaCon and everything like that. The main news is, though, you can register. Come over. We have got a website open now, SofaCon.org. That's all up and running there. Josh has pulled out all the stops and has got that going. So if you come over there, you can kind of see the guests. You can see what's comf- you know, what's coming up, what the plan is. And you can also... Register so you'll be get to know when the tickets come on sale. Because that's the thing at the minute. I'm not going to put any tickets up for sale yet. I want really this to have like say a backlog, you know, of shows talking about Silvercon, so you kind of know the coming up. Because a lot of the times people are kind of listening five shows down the road and, and don't know what's happening today. Do you know what I mean? So what I want, I want this kind of special for Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? We're coming up to show three hundred. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of, it's been a fantastic year, to be quite honest. You know, we've kind of been some, some great highs and back on some lows <laughs> not long ago. And it's just, you know, we're still here. And I just wanted to kind of like a celebration for everyone who's, who gets, that's the thing, who gets Starships over. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I want to kind of wait till most people's caught up and heard and heard there is going to be something happening on the 28th. 
And we haven't got that many tickets, you know what I mean? It's just it's the way this kind of software works. But, you know, hopefully who wants to come will be able to get a ticket once we kind of get them, you know, up and sorted. So come over to the website, sofacon.org, and front of the page there you can register, and that'll get you registered on our email system, and then we'll let you know when it's kind of when the tickets are on sale. And I mentioned it on the show as well. So that is SofaCon. So we'll get into the first bit of main fiction today. As you know, it's a two it's two two writers in today's show. The first one up is Peter F. Hamilton with a story called Return of the Mutant Worms. Now this actual story. You know, it's kind of brand new there for Peter F. Hamilton. Came out in 2011. Oh, it was the last story he wrote. And like I say, The Return of the Mutant Worms was in Solaris Rising, the new Solaris book of science fiction. 2011, edited by Ian Waits and like I say, published by Solaris. We've played some work by Peter F. Hamilton. And I think Peter as well, I'm hopefully going to try and get him. And that would be great on the observation deck to get Peter up on there and have a little chat and video interview with Peter F. Hamilton. I'll give you a little heads up. Peter F. Hamilton was born in Rutland, England on March the 2nd, 1960. Apparently he didn't attend university and he said in an interview, and I'm reading this from Wikipedia here, he says, I did science at school up to the age of 18. He stopped doing English, English literature, writing at 16. He just wasn't interested in those days, which I think is really quite, you know, strange. You're kind of always going to try and pigeonhole, you know, someone like Peter F. Hamilton. And I guess probably, you know, the likes of Alistair Reynolds, Stephen Baxter, Ken McLeod, you know, he kind of came in on this kind of wave of UK science fiction writers. I'll give us some of these kind of trilogies that he's wrote, because that's what he's kind of, you know, known for. The Greg Mandel trilogy, 1993 to 1995. Then along came the Night's Dawn trilogy, 1996, 1999. And, you know, I mean, there's some work in, in there. Wow, there's some words... Then he did his Commonwealth Saga, which was round about 2002 to 2005. Then the Void Trilogy, which 2007 to 2010. And it's just recently as well, and I never got a chance. We were going to you know, have an interview and have a chat, really, about this new book that came out in 2012 called The Great North Road. And it's set up here in the north of England, you know, northeast England. So I'd love to kind of like, say just for that reason alone, have a little chat with Peter. And, you know, and he's, he, he comes over when I've kind of spoken to him before, like a really nice fella, you know, a really ill kind of drinker there. So, you know, you can't get better than that. Today's story is narrated by another southerner, <laughs> Yorkshire lad, Mr. Nick Cam. And you know what? Um, and I probably, when I'm saying Yorkshire there, he's probably, oh, Yorkshire, Todd. What are you talking about? He's down, he's down south. And the lovely thing is, when I was actually trying to set up all these kind of, you know, this observation deck interviewing technique, you know, doing like in the, the video, I used, Nick was more me guinea pig, you know, <laughs> like with backwards and forwards testing it. And what you hear and what you see are <laughs> totally different. You know what I mean? You're going to hear like Nick in the, the most professional narrator, you know, you probably hear it on the internet today. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. What you say is not actually what... You... Nick, man, come on. So, 
I will put a link on the Nick site as well, and we'll try and I'll try and get Nick on as well. We've had a, an interview. We're going to try and get him on as well again, just to say hello, because he is, like you say, one of the best narrators out there. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present the Return of the Mutant Worms by Peter F. Hamilton. The writer took breakfast out on the penthouse apartment's balcony overlooking the Thames. His housekeeper had prepared his usual of eggs benedict and freshly squeezed orange juice, with a napkin over the toast so it would stay warm. He sat down facing the river, with the warm summer sunlight striking the glass and chrome buildings of Chelsea opposite. It was a late breakfast because it had been another late night. Clarissia had been so delighted about winning her new contract with Divinacci Lingerie, she'd been keen to party. Friends and fellow celebs had come over to congratulate her, and him. They hadn't left the club until after four, and there had still been several paps hanging around outside, snapping pictures of them together. Those images of them, his bow-tie undone rather like George Clooney, should make Tatler, or at least Hello, rebooting his profile. After all, he hadn't been on Radio 4 for a couple of months now, which had started to trouble him. His agent said not to worry. After all, the new book wasn't out for another six weeks. They'd start rebuilding his public profile soon in a big publisher-financed build-up to the Booker nomination season. Clarissier would be a big help in that department. Sipping the orange, he glanced at the morning's post which the housekeeper had placed on the tray. Usual rubbish. Bills, charities, foreign publishers, nothing from Hollywood again, damn it, redirectable fan mail, and a grey-blue envelope with a logo he hadn't seen in a decade. He blinked in surprise at the rocket ship and star which even today still managed to look faintly Soviet. There had been a time, twenty years ago, when an envelope bearing that logo popping through the letterbox would have made his whole week. Singularity Crystal Magazine was the UK's premier SF magazine, the launchpad for so many genre careers. He'd even managed to have a couple of stories accepted himself in his early twenties. The writer frowned at the envelope, slightly puzzled how the magazine had got his penthouse address. He supposed it would be a begging letter. He was vaguely aware that Singularity Crystal had slipped to a quarterly schedule a few years back, with a move to online issues imminent. Short story SF was a dwindling market these days. Puzzlement turned to outright bewilderment as he opened it and read the contract inside. It was a notification that Singularity Crystal was to publish his story, Mutant Worms of Kranikin, in their next issue. There was a transfer authority code for £73.40. He picked up his mobile and scanned in the number on the letterhead. The editor's voice hadn't changed. Still the old-school growl of a forty-a-day man. But then he'd always been a character, best avoided after ten o'clock at conventions. More than one poor waitress had found out the hard way how dangerous a beanie cap could be on the wrong head. "'My dear boy, I haven't seen you for years. We must be going to different conventions.' "'Yes,' said the writer, who'd stopped going to all of them twelve years ago. How was he to know another fangirl was wearing an identical masquerade costume? There seems to be a slight mistake. You've sent me a contract for a story. That's right. You're mutant worms. So glad I could finally get round to publishing it. 
Our schedule's been very busy. You must have got my name mixed up with someone else. I haven't sent you a story for a little while. Hmm, yes, uh, I've got your file up on screen now. Your subscription seems to have lapsed as well. It's a shame. We're about the last paying outlet for new talent left in the country. We need all the support we can get from the arts community. The writer tried to ignore the slight flush that was colouring his cheeks. Ah, sorry about that. My PA must have forgotten to renew it. I'll get her to sort that out today. You have a PA? Congratulations, me boy. You are doing well for yourself now, aren't you? From humble beginnings like my old little magazine, eh? Quite. Um, about the story. Yes, uh, I'm really proud to have your name in the magazine again. In fact, our next issue shall be out at the same time as your new book is published. I'm hopeful the two will complement each other. I might take an advert out in Publishers Weekly. I haven't sent you a story. You did. Time was when you sent me two a week. Around the office we used to call you the best-known name on the slush pile. Of course, there's no office anymore, just me now. Really, I I'm a novelist now. I haven't even written a short story for years. That's right. Mutant Worms was submitted 21 years ago. 21 years? Yes. I sent you an acceptance form which you signed and returned, and a deposit cheque for £8, which you cashed. You can't be serious. You can't hold me to a 21-year-old contract. Perfectly legal, the editor assured him, especially as you cashed the cheque. But I couldn't even write 21 years ago. It is a little rough and ready, I'll admit. I'll do some editing and send you the proof script, of course. Let's face it, you're not the first SF writer I've helped knock into shape, now are you? Out of all Singularity Crystal's discoveries, you're always my favourite, so don't worry. No, 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 this is totally unacceptable. I have a literary book coming out. This would be a distraction. People will enjoy the contrast, I'm sure. About time we saw some decent SF from you again. I don't write sci-fi anymore. Mm, that's such a shame. I always found it odd that your backlist isn't available. Almost like you're ashamed of it. Perhaps this will trigger a demand for older stuff that your publisher can cash in on. After all, everybody loves that enormous, weird, alien sex trilogy of yours. The writer felt his jaw muscles tense up. The day's Twilight trilogy was not about alien sex. Really? That's strange. I certainly remember there being pages and pages of it back when I read it. I was thinking we might publicise your new story as a sort of prequel. I've never written anything else in the day's Twilight universe, the writer insisted sharply. No, but thematically it's similar, isn't it? The writer took a deep breath trying not to smash the phone. I don't recall the story. Well, let's see. Our heroine is a Belle Maspar who crash-lands on Kranakin one dark and stormy night. The writer stopped listening. Now, he remembered. After all, nobody ever forgot their first true love. He'd been eighteen, 
and Adele Mason had gone to the same sixth-form college. He'd really, really fancied her. And when she delivered that final no, he'd expressed the soul-crushing rejection in the only way an eighteen-year-old literary geek could, by writing a... Oh, crap, the writer whispered. So you see, the editor continued cheerfully, what Abel makes that poor worm do really does qualify for the alien sex category, wouldn't you agree? You can't publish it, you simply can't. Tell you what, I'll write you a completely new story. No, two new short literary SF stories, and I won't even ask for payment. You're quite right. Singularity Crystal deserves all the support I can give it. I'll even mention it on Radio 4 next time I'm presenting. I haven't heard you on the art show for ages. I thought they'd dumped you. No, I'm just resting. So, how about that for a deal? I'm going on a huge publicity tour. I can cross-promote the magazine. Well, I'd like to, but I've already commissioned the artwork. That's expensive. I can pay for the covers for the new stories. It would be my pleasure. That's a very kind offer. I'm happy to see you thinking that way. You see, I regard the effort I put into young authors as an investment in the future. Specifically, my future. You don't really think I want to spend my best years reading through endless clichés about aliens and wormholes and vampire robots and brass bikinis because I'm some kind of demented masochist. No. Like I say, this is an investment for me. Ninety percent of that investment comes to nothing. But the other ten percent? Ah, now that's what makes it all so worthwhile. Especially in retirement. What are you saying? I'm saying, and this is not one of your metaphors, that I own your mutant worms. I paid a huge personal price for it and all the other dross I've had to read, and there's twenty-one years of interest accumulated. The writer shuddered, but there really was no way out. He couldn't bear to think what the TLS would say, and as for the Guardian... No, it couldn't be allowed to happen. I would be delighted to buy back the mutant worms of Kranikin, he said faintly. Did you have a price in mind? Why, my dear boy, that's so generous of you. Think of a figure, yes. Then go quantum on it. <laughs> There you go, John Leggett. Copyright is Mr. Peter F. Hamilton. And big thank you to Nick. Nick, sir, you are a bloody star. Thank you so much. So, going back to the beginning of the show, Red Dwarf. Yes, now it's all to do with, oh, that blooming word again, donations. But this is the thing, you see, this is the thing. Why I'm so committed to kind of starships over. And, you know... Putting it, putting it on track now, getting it on track now so we can kind of go into the future and just survive. That's the whole top and bottom of it. And I'll see, you come over and you sign up for the monthly donations, which is, you know, I give it all away free now. That's, you know, it, so you'd, you've got to kind of, I suppose, take me on trust as well. You're coming over and you could quite easily just get the shows for free. But it's this two-way thing, you know what I mean? I, 
truly believe in what I'm doing, and I hope you do as well. And like I say, I give away now as well one of my kind of products, which is the How to Write Science Fiction with Joe Haldeman. And oh God, Joe Haldeman for me was like the bee's knees, or it still is. Do you know what I mean? It's just one of my kind of great writers there. And, but now the kind of, I've, and I'd actually did this last week and I kind of, it was just after the show came out. Sign up for the monthly donations. That's the kind of key to Starship Sova's future is the monthly donations. Long as that's kind of there, the bedrock, that's all we're worried about. Sign up now for the monthly donations and you'll get the Joe Haldeman one, but you also get the original shows and like I say, they're 40, I think they're 14 in the shop. Sign up for any monthly donation plan and you will get that as well as the Joe Haldeman. So that's, you know what I mean? That's how committed I am, you know what I mean? Do you get Starship? So if you really get what we're here, what we're doing, just putting out fantastic science fiction, do you know what I mean? Peter F. Hamilton, Terry Bisson on the same show for you to listen to, you know. We need support. We need the help. We, we kind of, we want this thing to go... Keep on going, do you know what I mean? I don't want to, certainly don't want it to kind of crash and burn. Coming up to show 300, and there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to let that happen. So, you know, if you want to donate, that would be fantastic. You'll get two fantastic products now just as a thank you gift, you know, just to come along, sign up with the monthly donations, £2.50, a fiver, hey, 10, a 10, you know, bloody hell, 20 if you'd like to, that'd be fantastic. But it would mean a lot to us, it really would. So, next up is Music Soundtracks, David Reichlin. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Reichlin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This week, we begin a two-parter on the transmedia phenomena called Defiance. It's both a TV series and an MMO, an online video game, and it's been a success in both realms. In fact, it's the highest-rated single episode in the history of the Sci-Fi Channel, and it's a successful MMO that actually has been out for months before the premiere of the TV series in April 2013. Now, this is a kind of new paradigm because there have been shows TV shows and movies that have been adapted into video games and video games that have been adapted into movies. But this is the first time that they have both been done simultaneously, uh, at least to my knowledge. So it's a very cool, new, and successful business model. The show is created by Rock Neil Bannon, who also did Alien Nation and Farscape, and the game by Trion, T-R-I-O-N. Uh, they also did the MMO Rift. It's a success in both realms, in part because there's a unifying principle. There's characters and situations that are shared. It's a shared universe between the two, and they inform and interact with each other. One of the most deep and important levels where they interact is in the soundtrack. Bear McCreary has done the music for both the video game and the TV series, and this week we're going to focus on the video game because that soundtrack has already been released. And the TV series, we'll get into that just a little bit, but that's more for next week. There's really enough material for two shows here. Also this week, I think I'm going to give you a, a couple of rare treasures from 
the world of soundtracks. So we'll be getting Defiance and a little bit of bonus content. Okay, so onto the soundtrack of Defiance. Worlds of video game and TV have been brought together, but they still have their own tropes and technical necessities that require the composer to create a different kind of music for the video game than for the TV series. But there are themes and sounds that they can have in common, and that's really one of the most important things for unifying a large-scale structure, no matter what media or combination of media it's in. To have character theme, a situation or environment theme, a world theme, these are all things that people relate to and help you understand what the world is, even as it grows and changes. So we're going to start with a wonderful musical example. This is the theme to Defiance the video game, and then we'll also hear an excerpt from the theme to Defiance the TV series, and there's a lot that they have in common. And come to think of it, maybe the best thing to start with is the Defiance main theme, main ostinato, or repeating musical pattern. This driving high-energy music is a foundation for many of the cues to come. The Defiance main theme TV version that features the ostinato, that driving rhythm. Music by Bear McCreary. It has his characteristic percussion section and string orchestrations, but this has more electronics than ever. And you're going to hear even more of that when you listen to the video game version of the Defiance main theme. There's a beautiful violin solo in there. Please enjoy. The main theme from Defiance, video game version, music by McCrary. That gorgeous violin solo is by Nelly Nikleva, and she has solos that appear throughout the game and also the series soundtrack. She's got a gorgeous, nuanced tone that really helps sing the drama, gives you a sense of the life of the character. Wonderful performers here in Hollywood, and, and also in New York and London and other places where they do story music. The main theme also serves as a character theme for Joshua and Irissa, the lead male and female characters in the TV series. With different variations, that's part of the uh, art and skill, is to make the theme shift and change in orchestration and even the notes to suit the situation. The occupying civilization is called the Votans, which has many different races and cultures. And some of them are friendly and have relations with humans. And here is the Votan romance theme.
Rotan Romance, a more gentle moment from the soundtrack to the Defiance video game. Now let's move to one of the great action battle sequences in the game, the Battle of San Francisco. This is very high energy music and it almost sounds like a uh, crazy techno dance kind of piece, except that it's got all this ethnic and world music percussion and, and woodwinds. A real exciting piece, Battle of San Francisco. of San Francisco from the Defiance soundtrack, music by Bear McCurry. This is really a kind of techno dance music that really fits well in action-packed MMO-type video games. The use of that wobbling, bendy bass synthesizer sound is kind of a new direction for Bear, and he really makes the most of it using that instrument with its unique tone as part of the orchestra. He blends all of these exotic sounds into a orchestral kind of ensemble where everybody's supporting each other, often with unexpected results. Uh, although uh, one thing you might have predicted is that you take that sound to an extreme for the bad guy theme, the Volge. And yet he also goes in an unexpected direction with a Middle Eastern ethnic instrument called a zurna. This instrument doesn't need any electronic enhancement to sound far out, intense, and like serious chaos. music for the Volge, the militaristic bad aliens from Defiance the video game and series. That lead instrument there, played by the virtuosic Chris Bleth, is a Zerna. It's a Middle Eastern instrument that has an edgy siren-like tone that's plenty loud, even though it's acoustic. The instrument comes from Turkey and is made from apricot wood. Kind of cool and interesting. Bear takes this acoustic idea a step farther in depicting the rogue elements, the, uh, the people who are even on the fringes of this fragmented future Earth. And he gives them a mostly acoustic setting, but mixed in with the electronics, so it's in a unique kind of borderland. This is the music for the 99ers. Ninety-Niners, country techno battle music for sequences from the video game Defiance, music by Bear McCreary. This is interconnected with the music from the Defiance TV series. And next time, in the second of this two-parter, 
We'll explore how these musical ideas are developed in a more character-intensive story arc manner in the TV series. At the top of the show, we talked about a couple of rare treasures. Here's the first one from the wonderful adaptation of Robinson Crusoe into space, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. We have Lonely Lights. This is by Nate Van Cleve. Robinson Crusoe on Mars, Lonely Lights, music by Nathan Van Cleve. It evokes the wonder, imagination, mystery, and adventure of the best science fiction music. Now let's have one little treasure. It's from a fantastic series from the Disney TV archives in the 1950s. It's called Men Into Space. This is music of George Bruns, and it's the triumphant return of the rocket to Earth. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. Contact me, David Raikland, at Cinematic Music one at gmail.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. There you go, David. Thank you so much. I dropped a little note to Dave as well. Say, what about the new Star Trek? Can we do some a one on the new Star Trek music? So, fingers crossed. Got that to look forward to as well. Has anyone seen that new Star Trek? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobilecom switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Movie, Into the Darkness. Well, loved it. Bloody loved it. I did. <laughs> Today, now we have, we'll jump straight in, Terry Bisson, First Fire. Now, this story, you know, like we said, we just played Peter F. Hamilton in 2011. This one came out in 1998, and it was a Locust Pole Award. Best short story came eighth in that Locust Pole Award. It was, uh, first came out in Science Fiction Age, which was September 1998, edited by Scott Elderman. Now, I'm sure we've played a story by Scott as well. So there you go. Then it was in the May 2000 collection of Terry Bisson's in the upper room and other likely stories. And then it came out again, I think it must have been like a paperback version as well in 2011. And down through the years of Starship Sover as well, we've played a number of Terry Bisson stories. Didn't we, weren't we lucky enough? I think we were one of the kind of first out there to, to kind of snatch Bears Discover Fire and play that on Starship Sover, which just won so many awards. You know what I mean? It was just like, it's quite scary how many awards that's won. And then we ran these little kind of dead short fictions, which were like really quite like, you know, they just, it just was so funny and just so nice. And we had Gareth Stack doing the narrations for them. These were the, the Billy and the, the Billy and the Dinosaur, I think it was. And there was a few, or Billy in Dinosaur City. And there's actually a collection of them out now, Billy and the Ants, Billy and the Bulldozer, Billy and the Talking Plants, and there's loads of them. And I think they're actually, they're in a, a book collection there now, a Billy, Billy's Picture Book, which is with Rudy Rucker. So if you, that, honestly, that's, try and get yourself that copy of that book because, like I say, we played a few of the stories and they're just so quirky and so funny, you know, brilliant. In 2012, Mr. Bisson's got a new book out there, or had a new book out any day now, which was published by the Overlook Press. So do look out for... Terry Bisson, fantastic author. Have a look in our archives. You know, we've been having some great ones. This story is narrated by Robert T. Smalls. I'll put a link on to Robert's site. Robert's in a couple of, and he's actually been, I think, on one of our other shows as read as well. I'll put a link on to Robert's. He's got two great sites there. Robert Smalls and Life is What Happens. And that's a lovely little blog as well. Robert, so glad to have you narrating on Starship Sova. So, the Starship Sova is... Very proud to present. First Fire by Terry Bisson An unusual request indeed. Why should I fly you to Iran? Because you have money and I don't, Emil wanted to say, but didn't. Because I can help you authenticate your discovery at Epticon, he said. What discovery? The Flame of Zoroaster. The tycoon nodded his head. His knee had been nodding all along. He was the richest man in the world, and clearly one of the most impatient. He wore Levi's and a Gap T-shirt under a linen sport coat. His legs were crossed and his right foot was bobbing up and down as if he couldn't wait to get out of the office. Emil had gotten this appointment only by pulling every string and calling in every marker. He knew he had less than thirty seconds to make his case. There is a legend that the fire at Abdicon is the same one Darius worshipped, he said. I know the legend, said the tycoon. 
the Ebtikon dig was one of the few of his many projects that he followed closely. Most of them he ran through one foundation or another, but his interest in archaeology was genuine and deep. Emil knew that he had visited and even worked at the dig several times. Archaeology is not about legends, said the tycoon. It's about objects, small, hard objects you find in the dirt. What if I told you fire was a hard object, said Emil. The tycoon narrowed his world-famous eyes. They were boyish only in photos. I'm listening. I have developed a way to date fire. Not ashes, not charcoal, not the remnants or evidences of fire, but the flame itself. I'm all ears. Using my device, which I call the spectrochronograph, I can date a flame to its precise moment of ignition, said Emil. With most fires, that's only an hour or two. In the case of, say, the Olympic flame, it may be decades. I won't bother you with the technical details, but... Bother me with the technical details, said the tycoon. Emil explained how every flame has a unique spectrographic signature, which is altered over time at a steady rate and lost altogether when the flame is extinguished. Every new flame has a new signature, he said. With a spectrochronographic analysis, I can date a flame's age to within fractions of a second per century. You've dated flames that old? Not yet, said Emil, which is why I want to go to Ebdekon. Legends aside, the flame of Zoroaster is likely to be hundreds of years old. Dating it will put my spectrochronograph on the map. And my dig as well, said the tycoon. Emil was startled to realize that he had scored. He went for the extra point. If we found a candle that had been burning since the French Revolution, I could tell you exactly when the match itself was struck within two seconds. I estimate my error factor at .8 seconds a century. I'll make it easy for you, the tycoon said, opening his checkbook and writing as he spoke. Come back to my office in one week. On my secretary's desk you will find a candle burning. I want you to tell me, within one second, when the flame was lit. Pacific Standard Time. He tore out the check and laid it on the desk to indicate that the interview was over. Emil's heart was pounding as he picked up the check. It was for a hundred dollars. One week later, Emil showed up at the tycoon's office, carrying what looked to the secretary like a water pistol. This is the one, she said, pointing to the candle burning on her desk. Emil pointed his device at the flame and pulled the trigger until he heard a beep. He released the trigger and read the display. Is this some kind of a joke? He said. This flame was lighted less than three minutes ago. Sort of a joke, said the tycoon, coming out of his inner office with a burning candle in his hand. With two fingers, he pinched out the candle on the desk, then relighted it from the candle in his hand. Emil pointed the spectrochronograph at the flame and pulled the trigger again until it beeped. He read the display. I trust this is not another joke, he said. This flame is almost forty years old. Thirty-nine point eight six four to be exact. I can translate into months. That's okay, said the tycoon.
he sat down on the desk beside the burning candle, legs crossed, right foot bobbing. That's very good. It was lighted from the eternal flame on JFK's grave at Arlington. Did you know it's illegal to carry an open flame on a commercial flight, even in first class? I had to send a chartered jet to D.C. for your little test, but you passed it with flying colors. Emil thought of the chartered jet. He thought of his hundred dollars. The tycoon was already writing out another check. This is for expenses and R&D, he said. My secretary will send you a plane ticket. We will see you in Ebdakan in ten days. But can I give you one piece of advice? The question was a courtesy only. The tycoon didn't wait for an answer before continuing. Don't call it a spectrochronograph. Too sci-fi. Just call it a time gun. He stood up and handed Emil the check, then pinched out the flame again and left the room. The check was for one hundred thousand dollars. Emil had never flown first class before. For the first time, he wished the Atlantic wider, the flight longer. The luxury ran out in Uzbekistan, however, and the last two legs were made on terrifying Aeroflot prop jets. Eptikon was a tiny crossroads in a vast desert, scratches on mauve sand. Emil had expected magnificent ruins, and all he found were mud huts with corrugated roofs, a petrol station that calculated by abacus, and a stalled Russian tank covered with indecipherable graffiti. Alexander leveled it all. Said the site manager, a portly Wisconsin professor named Elliot, as they drove from the dirt airstrip to the tent city at the dig. The Macedonians razed the temples, raped the women, enslaved the men, butchered the children. He recounted this with an alarming glee. Then Alexander personally snuffed out the sacred flame of Zoroaster, which had burned supposedly for ten thousand years. But according to legend, he was fooled. The flame had already been spirited away by the priests. It's preserved in a small shrine about twenty miles north of here. Twenty miles in northern Iran was like two hundred back in California. The next morning, Emil found himself rattling across the black sands in a Toyota Land Cruiser, expertly driven by a Wisconsin graduate assistant. Professor Elliot bounced around in the back seat. I've met him several times, and he's all right with me. The graduate assistant said. For one thing, he doesn't come on to every female. For another, he really cares about archaeology. He has values. Her name was Kay. She was talking about the tycoon, a Wisconsin alumnus. Sometimes Emil got the impression that the purpose of his worldwide business and philanthropic activities was just so these conversations would be held. It's interesting that he's excavating this city that was sacked by Alexander," said Professor Elliot. "In many ways, he is a modern Alexander." Nothing can stand against him, or at least against the technology, the capital, and the connections he commands. The flame of Zoroaster was in an artificial cave, carved out of a sandstone cliff. It was maintained and guarded by a small coterie of monks who were reluctant to show in the non-faithful. But Zoroastrianism is an obsolete and beleaguered faith, and it had been easy enough to convince local officials that the shrine was, like Abtekan. Part of the heritage of humankind. The monks were under orders. They had already let in the professor several weeks before. They did so again, graciously, if reluctantly. The flame burned in a large bowl of beaten gold. 
a young monk fetted twigs from a pile against one wall. The twigs themselves were testimony to the diligence and ingenuity of the monks, since the desert was barren for miles around. Emil found out later that the wood was brought by the faithful from as far away as India. Emil pointed his time gun at the flame and pulled the trigger until it beeped. He looked at the display and let out a low whistle. What is it? asked Professor Elliot. Just what they say, said Emil. He showed the professor and the student the display. Jesus, said Kay. When this fire was built, Jesus was as far in their future as he is now in our past, said Emil. The flame was 5,619.657 years old. So it's true, said Elliot, looking astonished. Emil nodded. Most of it. Certainly it's true that they've kept it burning since long before Alexander's time. Jesus, said Kay again, shaking her head. Emil noticed that she was more attractive with her eyes wide and her lips parted. It softened her. The monks looked pleased as they ushered their guest back out into the bright sunshine. That night Emil and Kay spent the night together, outside the tents, under the million stars. It was lonely on the dig, she explained, though she didn't really have to. She had a boyfriend, but he was in Madison. They had an understanding. Emil suspected that she and the tycoon had shared the same view of the desert sky. Somehow, he didn't mind. It was a memorable evening. Kay was a memorable girl, small-breasted, high-spirited, compact, practical, and resourceful. And Emil had never seen so many stars. The next day he left for the world, or at least New York. At the crude airstrip he was surprised to meet the tycoon himself helicoptering in. He was a little reluctant to talk about what he was doing, but Emil found out eleven months later when he was invited to the unveiling of the flame of Zoroaster at the Metropolitan. The tycoon was more than generous in his praise of Emil and his time gun, as he was careful to call it, and more than forthright in their short but substantial private discussion. I helped the government out with their debt, in exchange for the shrine. They made their own deal with the Zoroastrians. The shrine has always been a bit of an embarrassment to a fundamentalist government. Islam is a modern religion, you know, post-Christian. You bought it, said Emil. It's an artifact, said the tycoon. Now that you have authenticated it, it belongs to all humankind. At the Met, the flame was fed on natural gas. Emil couldn't help wondering what had happened to the young monk who had fed it twigs. Was he a cabbie now, in Cairo or in Queens? As well wonder what happened to a soldier from Darius's army. Alexander's destiny was to conquer the world, not to number its sparrows. Professor Elliot was at the opening, but not Kay. Emil was disappointed. He had entertained a fantasy of a rendezvous. He even mentioned her to the tycoon, who said dreamily, Kay, I have so many projects. Emil was apparently on retainer, for once a year, on the anniversary of his visit to Ebticon, he got a check for $100,000. But never a call. That was all right. He preferred his independence. The flame of Zoroaster had indeed put his time gun on the map, and in the next two years he authenticated 
dated the San Gabriel Mission Hearth in California, 221.052 years, and a coal seam blaze on Baffin Island, 797.563 years. The time gun was an accepted archaeological tool, but after the first flurry of interest, there wasn't much demand. How many flames need dating? Emil tried to interest astronomers, but the device didn't seem to work at a distance. The numbers came out all wrong. According to the time gun, the stars weren't as old as the Earth. Emil found out what had happened to Kay 18 months later, when he got an email suggesting a meeting at the Oak Room at the plaza. She wasn't alone. This is Claude, she said, introducing a young black man in jeans and a raw silk jacket. Claude had a rich French accent, which was later localized to Kinshasa and Paris. Emile didn't like him. His head was too big for his narrow shoulders. He smoked Gauloise. They ordered drinks. Kay let it be known that the tycoon was picking up the tab. I've been working for him since I got my doctorate, she said. Special projects. Had he really not remembered her, Emil wondered. Did Alexander remember every city he ravished? Claude was not a boyfriend. Not even, strictly speaking, a colleague, but a divinity student from Yale. Comparative religion. And I have discovered, he said, the oldest religion in the world, I think, as well as one of the smallest. It's called Gerapte, which means, in Highland Volof, first fire. Remember the monks at Abtekan? said Kay, laying her hand on Emile's wrist. This is the same deal. The entire purpose of the religion is guarding a fire. I remember, said Emile. Guarding a flame, said Claude. I have interviewed one of the Garapte priests at Deforquet. A rebel, a runaway. I met him in Paris last year. He claims that the flame they call Garapte is the first flame ever lighted by man. It provides a chemin sombre, a unbroken link from the first humans to today. This flame is guarded and maintained by a secret priesthood high in the Ruanzori. The mountains of the moon, said Kay. Overlooking the rift valley, mused Emile. Exactement, said Claude. They have the location right. According to most anthropologists, this is the area where man first evolved. Whatever that means, said Emile. Speech, upright posture, tools, fire, said Claude. Whatever else you think, fire is key. It separates man from beast. You believe them, then? None, no, of course not. Claude lit another Gauloise from his last. The cigarettes so far formed an unbroken chain like the flame of Zoroaster, or Garapte. But I do wish to find out how old the fire is, said Claude. If it is, in fact, several thousand years old, it changes our whole view of so-called animist African religions, and their, how shall I say it, uh, their gravité. This man has a political agenda, thought Emile. But then, who doesn't? They made plans over dinner. Later, Emile found himself in a plaza hotel suite with Kay. She was, if anything, even more inventive and accomplished than before. A memorable lover. Love without possession or even the desire for possession 
That was what it meant to share a woman with the richest man in the world. It was as if the tycoon lay alongside them. Oddly, it added to Emil's pleasure. You know what he did with the flame of Zoroaster? Kay asked. Sure. He bought it and put it in the Met. He put it out first. What? He's a strange and driven man, Kay said. He feels this mystical connection with Alexander. He has this thing about history, about breaking with the past at the same time that you are recognizing it. But the whole damn point was that the flame was authentic. As soon as it's stated again, why would it be? Unless you do it. And you are on his payroll, so to speak. She held her small breasts, one in each hand, like pomegranates. Are you going to stay the night? The ruined Zori, from the air, is a terrifying tangle of cloud and ice and stone. Emil had discovered in his two years with the time gun that he was unsuited for serious fieldwork. He didn't like small planes or short fields. This trip had both. Claude had been here once before. Kay and Emil hung back while he showed a letter and engaged a guide. The guide was not a Gerapte initiate, but part of the secret and presumably ancient network of believers who maintained the priests who maintained the flame. Kay arranged the transportation. They took a helicopter to a small village on a high shoulder of the range. A Land Rover, they hadn't yet been replaced here by Toyotas. To a smaller village on a higher shoulder, and walked the rest of the way. The Ruinzori were wrapped in mist like ghosts. The guide started up the trail, a long ribbon of mud. Claude put out his cigarette before following. We could have choppered in the entire way, he said, but that might have offended the L'Enfance. The children? said Emile. Oui, the children. That's what they call themselves, Claude explained. It's an interesting contrast to European priests, don't you think, who style themselves as fathers. These priests, there are only three at any one time, call themselves the children of the first fire. Ger up day. Keeping alive the spirits of their ancestors, said Emile. Pas de tu. Claude's reproach was sharp. This is not simplistic ancestor worship der fraki. They don't believe in gods or ghosts. There is an anthropic cosmology. Man built a fire, then looked up and saw the stars, thus bringing into being the universe as we know it. The job is to keep it going. The ritual acknowledgement of fire as the source, the origin of consciousness, said Kay. Non, a task, not a ritual, said Claude. Maintaining the first fire, der apte, no more, no less. What an arrogant fuck, thought Emile. The first of the children met them late in the afternoon and led them off the trail through a narrow pass. The guide turned back. Their new guide was a wiry, coal-black man of about fifty, wearing a faded blue hooded wool robe over bright Nikes. Single file, they crossed a snowfield, skirted a tiny emerald lake, and angled up a scree slope into clouds again. As at Epticon, the shrine was a cave. The doorway was a perfect half-circle, hollowed not out of sandstone, but out of a polished granite that gleamed like marble. Beside it waited a much older man, dressed in the same blue robe. He spoke to Claude in one language, and to his compatriot 
and another. Claude gave each of the two a pack of Gaulois. He hadn't smoked since the Land Rover. They were at almost ten thousand feet, and the air was thin and cold. The two children led the three travelers into the cave. It was only twenty feet deep, the size of a small garage. A Persian rug was on the floor. Several plastic ten-gallon drums were stacked near the door. A tiny flame burned in a hollow on the rock, which was filled with oil. The wick seemed to be twisted moss. An old man, older than the other two, watched the flame, adding oil from an open drum with a long dipper of bone or ivory. Clever, thought Emil. The flame is kept small. They don't have to haul twigs up the mountain, just oil. He wondered if he had spoken out loud. The old man answered him, but not directly. He says that, in the temps perdu, it was done with twigs. Said Claude. Then, they learn to use fat. Ask them how old the fire is. Emil said as he took out the time gun. The children's slight alarm turned to curiosity as they realized it wasn't a weapon. They don't have an answer in years," said Claude. "They say beaucoup, many, many, many." Ask them about the first men," said Kay. "They were women," said Claude. "They called them the mothers. They used no speech, but kept the fire for many generations. No words, only fire. Many, many, many." "Habilis," said Emil. Erectus corrected Claude. Not likely," said Kay. "Fire might have been used by Homo erectus, but they can't have been the ones to preserve it ritually." "Why not?" Emil asked. "Ritual implies language," said Kay. "Symbolic thinking, consciousness. Even if Homo erectus discovered and used fire, he couldn't have she," said Claude. "She then." Said Kay, who was unused to being corrected by men in matters of gender. She wouldn't have constructed a myth, couldn't have. I told you, it's not a myth," said Claude. "It's a simple task. We are the ones who construct the myth. Sapien, Homo sapien sapien. Whatever." Emil pointed the time gun at the tiny flame. He squeezed the trigger until it beeped. He read the display. Then he looked around the cave at the children and his two companions. "Holy fucking shit," he said. "Huh?" "K." "Claude." "The flame is almost a million years old." That evening they sat around a small campfire outside the cave, and shared an impressive brandy from the flask that Claude had brought with him, just in case. "So, it's true," he said. Lighting his first gawas since the Land Rover. More than true," said Emil. "It's positive." It seems impossible," said Kay. "Impossible and wonderful." I want that to believe," said Claude, shaking his too large head. "You hope, and you hope not. The real world devours your expectation." There were big tears in his eyes. He'd had. Two drinks for every one of Emil's and Kay's. Emil was liking him more. Kay was on the cell phone, punching in long strings of numbers. I told him I would call. She explained. 
Behind them, in the darkness, the children went about their business. Nothing in their world had changed. They had known all along. That night, Emil slept with Kay out by the fire. Claude had passed out in the tent, and the children had slipped off to wherever it was that they stayed, perhaps in the cave with the flame. Kay was as cool, as studied, as memorable as ever. They made love, then lay side by side in separate bags under the strange equatorial stars, her small hand in his. Not a single constellation was familiar. It was after midnight when the chopper came in. It would have landed by the cave if the children hadn't waved it off frantically, the hoods of their robes flattened in the rotor's downdraft. The chopper sat down at the base of the scree a hundred yards away. That hundred-yard climb was the tycoon's offering to tradition. Emil, Claude, and Kay were waiting for him at the top of the slope. "'Hey, kid,' he said to Kay, and gave her a lingering peck on the cheek. Emil was more flattered than jealous. How many men shared a woman with an emperor? "'And it's positive?' he asked Emil, studying the readout which had been saved in the time gun's memory. Emil nodded. This single flame has burned unbroken for 859,134.347 years. He liked saying it. Erectus, said the tycoon. Oui, said Claude, who was still a little drunk. Pre-human, pre-speech. This changes everything we have ever imagined about hominid evolution. It means we had, or rather, they had, for they were an earlier species, the technology to maintain and control fire long before they had speech or tools. Last night's campfire was almost out. Claude's empty flask lay beside warm ashes. Fog filled the valleys far below, and a million stars blazed overhead. It means that there is an unbroken link between ourselves and our earliest ancestors, said Kay. She surprised Emil by taking his hand. Then he saw that she had already taken the tycoons. An unbroken link between you and me and the first human who looked into a campfire. And into his own pensée, said Claude, taking Emil's other hand. Whatever, said the tycoon, pulling free. Let's go and have a look. The children, who had been waiting silently by the rounded doorway, led them into the stone cave. The tycoon stared into the tiny flame with bright, narrow eyes. A million years of human culture, he whispered loudly, and it is but a single page. Emil was warmed by this reverence, as by a shot of brandy. Kay alone realized what was about to happen. Even the children were unprepared when the tycoon reached out and, with two fingers, pinched out the flame. And now the page is turned. Mon Dieu! Good God! said Emile. He lunged, teeth bared, fists clenched, but the tycoon ran for the doorway, knocking over the oil drums. The children fell to their knees, wailing. Kay wailed with them. Outside, Claude and Emile circled the tycoon, who looked dazed but fierce. Claude picked up a stone. Overhead, without any fuss. The stars were going out, one by one. On the ground, no one noticed. 
There you go. Big thank you to Robert. Robert, thank you so much. And Terry, what a star. Thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Terry Bissons. What a show, man. Gets better and better. Now, I want to just bring you to the attention to our, our, our writer's workshop with Mike Resnick and Paul DeFilippo on the 16th of June. And tickets are going good. The only thing is, I keep on forgetting to mention it on the show. And there is special tickets with that show. You know, you can come along to the kind of the D event and the workshop and have Terry Biss... Terry Biss... Not me, there's an idea. Have Paul DeFilippo and Mike Ren- Rensick. But also, if you want to kind of have like a kind of an advanced lesson where you have like a one-to-one lesson with Mike or with Paul on video and they critique your story, there's that option as well. Now, them tickets are £99. But here's the thing. There was only five each of them tickets. And there's only one... When I'm recording this on the Monday, the show comes out on the Wednesday. There is only one ticket left for the Mike Resnick and there's only four, four for Paul de Filippo's. Yeah, there's still plenty of the tickets left to come up for the main show, but the ones where you get critiqued and, you know, you actually sit down with the guy on video one-to-one, there's only one ticket left for Mike Resnick. So if, you, if, you, if you're lucky enough, you'll, you might snag it or pull the fill There's only four left for there. But it's on the 16th of June, so if you're serious about your writing or just, you know, the workshop in general, come along. It'd be fantastic to see you. Right, I want to play a little promo now. Dark Missives. Dark Missives is a quarterly online magazine that publishes an eclectic mix of literary and genre fiction every January, April, July, and October. After the labors of the day are over, the staff of Dark Missives gathers in moldering libraries and dimly lit apartments to tell original stories of the strange and macabre, stories to delight ourselves and entertain our readers. Currently, Dark Missives publishes a mixture of art, poetry, flash fiction, and short stories in every issue. In future issues, they're planning on expanding into the realm of nonfiction, initially by starting up a reader's guide that will help individuals discover the shadow world of dark fiction, its colorful history, and contemporary writers within the genre. If you'd like to know more about Dark Missives, Check them out at darkmissives.wordpress.com or on Twitter at darkmissives. They go. I'll put a link on that site if you're interested. Please pop over there. That would be fantastic. So, what a show, man. Come on. 289 will go down history as a cracking show. Hope you enjoyed it. Do consider, you know, the donations. Like you see, now you get the originals. And actually, what I'll do is I'm just going to click, and this is all kind of lying. <laughs> this is not because I'm never, never, on, never have it all sorted out or anything. What I'll do is I'm going to read the, the kind of the list of the kind of myself and Kieran and what were covered on those originals. And like you see, was was started. Oh, I forget what it. Um, 2006 when we kind of started the originals. You know, like doing this show. So the very first one we kicked off with, show one, was Alfred Bester, then John Brummer, Algis Budgis, Cordwina Smith, Stanislaw Lem. Then we did Dark Star. Uh, my, uh, it'd probably take us ages. Philip K. Dick, we did a three-part one on Philip K. Dick. Then we looked at the film Capricorn 1, Henry Kuttner. Then we did Robert Silverberg, Joe Haldeman, Elron Hubbard, we even delved into him, Harlan Ellison, Douglas Adams, we did a two-part one on Douglas Adams, Robert Sheckley, 
Roger Zellini, and I learned so much, mind you, when I was doing all these as well. Ian M. Banks, Ursula Kayla Grin, then we did a few Christmas specials and an email show. Then we jumped into James Triptree, did her, did Neil Gaiman, which was like a two-parter. Then we Samuel Delaney, then we did Religion in Science Fiction, which actually was an amazing one there. Then we did The Two Red Dwarfs, Gene Wolfe, Jack Vance, Clark Ashton Smith. And what, you know what I remember as well? Is this is where we got the listeners from because on certain shows I got emails back saying, Oh Tony, I came over when you know you did the Clark Ashton Smith one, you know, and that's how we, we got into it. You know, it was that's how people got into Starship Sober. Then we did Charles Bormont, another email show, John W. Campbell, Harry Harrison, Kirk Vonnegut, Frederick Paul, Damon Knight, New Worlds, did William Gibson, Joseph Philip Joseph Farmer, one and two, Charlie Stross. Stephen Donaldson, and that was probably, I think, the Stephen Donaldson one, we'd actually read one of his short stories, so that was probably one of the f- first early times that we do doing kind of stories there. Then we did the fan show, this is like fandom in science fiction. It's great when you come over to the, the website and just have a look at all the pictures, you know, of, of the writers kind of there. It's, it's remarkable. Then we did Robert Heinlein, and we actually did a three-parter on Robert E. Heinlein, and we used to get these actually name wrong, I think, in the, in, in the early days. Then we did Computers in Science Fiction. And then we did a two-parter on the Hugo Award. Then we did Andrea Norton, Clifford D. Simak, Vernor Vinge, Joan D. Vinge, C.M. Cornbluth. Then we looked at Interzone. Then Kieran's favourite, Dan Dare, part one and part two. Then we jumped into Waller M. Miller, part one and part two. Then this is, we did in 65, and this is where... It was sometime round here where show 65, maybe something like that, that I had my accident and fell over, you know, and this was kind of, no, I think it was probably a couple of weeks after that. But then we did like a Bob extra where it was just myself and Bob. This was a friend of, of kind of mine. And we, we did a show. Then we did Moorcock Gonzo. And this is where just Kieran and myself just kind of sat down and talked about going over to Paris and interviewing Michael Moorcock. Then we did Larry Niven. Jerry Pornell, and then show 69 was Sex in Science Fiction. And I think that's where I kind of fell over. And I don't know if anyone knows or a few know. I knocked myself out at work. And I just went to work one day, fell over, passed out, smashed, and I, I fractured my skull. And I, I fractured in about two places. And it was, I just passed out because I think being so tall, you know, I stood up dead quick and just, you know, keeled over. But I was in hospital about four days with like fractured skulls and all sorts. So it kind of went on hold, the, sh- the show at, at that time. And that's, you know, the kind of show would myself and Kieran kind of parted from there. And then I, kinda, I think I just took over and did a few by myself. I did Spider Robinson. Then there was a Christmas science fiction chat, Flowers for Algernon, Hal Clement, Octavia Butler, El Sprague de Camp, Time Travel, and actually, I remember the L Sprague. Uh, does anyone know that? Um, a few know that I kind of get, you know, a bit twitchy with anxiety now and again. At show 75, I also remember, oh, it was hideous. <clears throat> I kind of put the hairs on the back of my neck now talking about it. But show 75 was, I was in a kind of bad spiral going down, down, down. And that one show, show 75, from as recording it to finishing it, I didn't think about anxiety. And that's if you kind of know anxiety. You just kind of know what it's like. It's on your mind all the time. 
And that was where I kind of saw, saw a little bit of light, you know, and kind of pulled myself together sort of thing. Then I did a time travel one. Then Olaf Stapledon, John Saldak, M. John Harrison, Connie Willis. Then we did the B, the BSFA show. I looked at that. Then Forrest G. Ackerman. Then the fan, f- fantasy and science fiction magazine, Ender's Game, Alan Moore. I did an editorial, whatever that is. Then looked at Stephen Baxter, Ted Chang, John Scalzi, Kirk Vonnegut. And, oh, that was a two-part for Kirk Vonnegut. Then J.J. Ballard, H.B. Piper. Looked at Ace Books, Bruce Sterling and Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm sure Amy did Edgar Allan Poe. That was Amy actually stood in and do a show. So all them shows there now, and there's, trust us, there's hours and hours of work. Sign up to the monthly donations and you'll get all them, as well as the Joe Haldeman, How to Write Science Fiction. Can't say better than that. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.